Hi, friend. Before we start the show, I just want to give you a quick disclaimer. In this episode, I have a very good friend of mine share her story about experiencing and walking through a devastating loss in her life, the sudden death of her husband. And if you are someone that is going through loss right now, or you have experienced loss in your life before, and you think that hearing her story of working through grief may be triggering for you, then I just want to let you know ahead of time so you can be mindful about what's going to be healthy for you to hear and experience. This is a wonderful and gracious episode that I'm so excited to share, but I love you and I don't want you to be surprised by content that you might not expect. All right, on to the show. Welcome to Creative Rising, my friend, a show about what it's really like to run a photography business. If you're new here, then welcome. I am so glad you're here. I know that I'm totally biased, but I happen to think that Creative Rising is the best podcast in the photography world, maybe the creative world or the entire world, but you know, I'm not biased whatsoever. I'm Erin Youngren, and my husband Jeff and I are the Youngrens. We're a husband and wife wedding photography team that also runs a commercial photography studio here in San Diego, California. If you're not new around here, then you know that at Creative Rising, I get pretty real and honest about life as a creative entrepreneur and a photographer. I don't shy away from the hard stuff, and neither do the amazing people that I invite into these episodes. And today's show is a prime example of that. Today, I'm talking about the topic of starting over. And the reason I'm interested in this topic is because if anything is guaranteed in life, it's change, right? And entrepreneurs don't tend to stay in one career for very long. And that is especially true for creative entrepreneurs. It is not uncommon for people like us to do one thing for a while and then decide to make a big change, to pivot to something else, or just to start over in a completely new business endeavor. And most of the time, we do that by choice. Yeah, the business that you guys built was a very successful wedding business. And I feel like it's the kind of business that most photographers dream of having. And so why are you moving on from having a business that is relatively successful? And at at this point, it's a pretty sure thing. And now you're going to become an author that is not guaranteed. So (laughs) what's the catalyst for that change? Why are you doing it? I always joke because it's like we like we like to give our parents more gray hairs, essentially. <laughs> this is my wonderful friend, Mary Morantz, who built an incredible photography business with her husband, Justin, over the last 13 years. And as you heard me say, it was successful and thriving. They are educators and speakers, but now they have decided to close the door on shooting weddings so Mary can start over and pursue her lifelong dream of writing a book and becoming an author. And the last 13 years have been an exercise in like being really comfortable, being uncomfortable. And like, we've been on a streak now for, I don't know how long where I wake up every day and I am scared out of my mind at the new thing we're trying. But like you start to retrain your brain along the way to actually see that as we're excited, not just completely terrified, maybe a bit terrified, but also really excited. But sometimes life throws us a curveball, and the choice to start over isn't actually a choice at all. Sometimes we're forced to build a whole new life from scratch. And then I just woke up that December and that was what? That was two and a half years after Jeff passed away. 
And and I just kind of woke up and I was like, okay, I think I'm ready to get back to work. What am I going to do? <laughs> like, <laughs> and it was just like, again, like, okay, well, at least that's one step. Like, at least I feel like I might be able to bring something to the table, you know? Because I just, I, I didn't have it before then. This is Betsy McHugh, and she's been a close friend to Jeff and me for over a decade because she started her photography business with her late husband, who's also named Jeff, at the same time that we did. And our mutual husband and wife wedding photography team businesses, we grew up alongside each other. We did wine nights together. We walked each other through leaving all of our corporate jobs, and we leaned on each other through the ups and downs of running a photography business. And we became really, really close over the years. But in 2016, Betsy's husband, Jeff, suddenly passed away. And to put it mildly, it was a devastating shock for Betsy, for us, and for the entire photography community here in San Diego. And in the years since Jeff's passing, Betsy has not only walked through a tough journey of grief and being a young widow, But in the process, she also lost her livelihood. And so her journey has been one of not only grieving and healing as a person who has suffered an unimaginable loss, but the part of her story that I'm going to focus on here today is one of starting over as an artist and learning how to be creative all over again. I was I was just like in this I just kept on going like it's gonna come at some point like I, I'm just gonna I've got to keep living day to day until it emerges like at some point it's gonna come to me and I just I had to trust in that. Today I'm telling the stories of two creatives that both had a really good thing going and then started over either by choice or not. I want to talk about how these two amazing women are doing it, why they're doing it the way that they are. And if you find yourself at a point of starting over, either by choice or not, I want you to know that you can do it too. So Jeff and I met back in 1995. Uh, best friends in college were dating for a hot second and managed to get us together in that process. (laughs) We dated for five years (laughs) and then we got married in 2000 and were married for 16 years. Like I mentioned, Betsy and Jeff ran a husband and wife wedding photography business and just like my Jeff and me, they were best friends. They worked together, they played together, they traveled to Germany and Mexico all the time. They were huge Jimmy Buffett fans. They were parrot heads, as Buffett fans are known. And they loved wine and people and the couples that they photographed. So for Betsy, she felt like she was in a particularly unique and challenging situation when she not only lost her life partner, but her business partner and her business at the same time. Well, first of all, there's no handbook for this, right? I'm a creative. I'm a photographer. I was a wedding photographer. I was a wedding photographer with my husband. Like, I mean, so many things that were so unique to my life that I felt like I just couldn't approach things, I think, in a traditional way. Because that's not how we've lived our lives. And it's not how I'm wired. And I've kind of gone into a lot of thought about how being an entrepreneur, you're taking risks all the time. You're 
and as a creative too. You're taking risks. You're willing to try something and see if it works or doesn't work. And if it doesn't, you try a different path. And and we're constantly problem solving more than the average individual, I think, too. And so, um, and all of those decisions when the business is your own are so closely tied to who you are that I felt like I was more equipped to deal with the rest of life because of those skills. I've kind of like had this thought about like grieving as an entrepreneur, it's a totally different thing. In the months after Jeff passed away, Betsy was in a place where she had lost so much that from this place of nothing, she needed to decide how she was going to grieve and heal and rebuild her life as a creative. Travel and photography saved me. After some time of grieving and therapy, Betsy decided to get herself out of San Diego and out of the world that her and Jeff had shared together to help her in her grieving process. So she found a traveling program for entrepreneurs that would take her to a different country every month. So I hopped on a plane, had a major anxiety attack somewhere over the Atlantic, and landed in Prague. In the first weeks and months of traveling different European countries, Betsy realized just how blocked she had become as a creative in her years of being a wedding photographer. That I'd spend my days just like wandering the streets and I didn't even know when I got there. I was like, you know, I saw people like, yeah, I'm going to go take photos for and just travel and explore. And But I had no idea what I was going to take pictures of either. You know, like I was like, I don't know. I spent so much time shooting for other people and their expectations and their needs. I didn't know what I wanted to shoot for myself. It had been eons since I'd done any kind of like really personal work because it just got busy. You know, it happens to us all. When I went and traveled solo, I would leave my door. I would leave my apartment, my flat. I'd walk out the door and I didn't have a plan. I would just walk until I hit something and it might be a train or metro or whatever and I'd hop on it and like get off someplace random or whatever and like or if I did like okay I want to go see this one thing today I didn't make like laundry lists of trying to check off a bunch of stuff might change my mind by the time I got there or change my mind halfway there that happened plenty of times I get off the train and then go someplace else I'm like I don't really feel like doing that anymore and so I was learning to trust myself again and like trusting that gut instinct and listening to myself because in the process of losing Jeff, we were so, our lives were so intertwined that, I mean, we spent 24 seven together. (laughs) We didn't have our own, all of our friends were mutual friends. Like if it was Jeff's friend, it was my friend and vice versa. And we worked together and we played together. And like, you know, all of these things that I really lost myself and I didn't even know, like, I went through this whole process when I traveled that was like, okay, what do you feel like doing right now? Does that sound good? Does that, is that something you're tied to because that's something you and Jeff liked? Is it something you like? Is it something you want to like or you're interested in? And so I went through this, like, this was like a thought process that went through my head every time I decided to do something. And it was all like in the moment. It was like, okay, what does that feel like here in my gut? And so just learning to trust my gut and learning who I was and like what I actually liked just by myself which 
that comes up, <laughs> that brings up some major processing too, you know, just like that, recognizing that sever. After a few months, something interesting happened for Betsy. Her inner artist, it started to emerge. I'd never, ever thought of myself as an artist. I always introduced myself as a photographer. I kind of thought of myself more as a technician than an artist. <laughs> and then I was in Berlin. This was the second month that I was traveling, which I love Berlin. It's one of my favorite cities. It's a very art-filled city on all different levels. And, and it's just so accepted there, you know? Like, what? Everybody's an artist here. And, like, somebody asked me what I did, and it just fell out of my mouth. I'm like, I'm an artist. And they're like, oh, what kind of artist? And I'm like, I'm a photographer. And they're like, oh, what kind of photography do you do? And so it just kind of, like, but it all seemed so natural and so accepted there. And it was like, it was like, oh, my gosh, the word was out of my mouth before I could take it back. You know, it felt a little scary to actually commit to saying that because I'm like, oh, God, how do I back this up? Like, <laughs> And it was just, it was one of those, like, kind of imposter moments that sneak into your head, you know? After Betsy had been traveling for a little over six months, she found herself in London, and it was time for her to come home to California. She wanted to come back to San Diego and sell the house that she and Jeff had lived in for a lot of years together. But she found herself pushing back her plane ticket time and time again. She kept extending her stay and moving to new Airbnbs because while she'd done some healing as a creative in her months of travel, it was time to do some healing in her heart. At that point, I went into this hole basically for like three days. I just like, I didn't, I didn't get out of bed. Like I just went to this space and like I woke up all of a sudden three days later and I was like, okay, I just came to a place of acceptance. And it was like the weirdest thing I've probably ever experienced. And it was the anger dissipated a little bit. There was a little diffusion. The edges were a little bit softer. And I just said, okay, you don't get to be angry about that life that you thought that you were supposed to have. This is your life. And for whatever reason, this is it. <laughs> what you gonna do with it? And, and then I walked out the door that day and I remember standing at that intersection in London and I looked down at the ground. And I was, you know, because they drive on the opposite side of the road, right? So I'm standing there at the intersection and just looking down to my feet and I saw look right and look left. And that was like, that became my thing. It was like, don't look too far ahead. Don't look too far behind you. You're right here right now, right or left. <laughs> you mentioned being angry about not getting the future that you had. Do you think that you had to let go of that before you could truly start over or step into whatever it was that you were going to do next? Absolutely. 1,000%. I basically, I, I mean, I remember talking to, well, I did a lot of talking to myself because I was traveling by myself. I caught myself in London talking to a squirrel and I was like, maybe it's time to meet new friends at a restaurant or something instead of a community table. Don't need to have conversations with squirrels. But I remember having saying that out loud to myself and and it was hard to say and it was hard to hear. And I said, that future 
was never yours. You don't, you're not entitled to that. <laughs> and, uh, and I think that all comes back to that, like, learning to live in the present, too. It's like, I, I'm not, in, I'm not, that isn't owed to me. That future moment is not owed to me. I'm not entitled to it. It's not mine until it happens. And so the only thing that is mine is right now. <laughs> and, and what do I do with that? I felt like it was like a fog had lifted when I actually, it was like, I don't get to be angry. Like, who am I going to get angry at about that? Like, <laughs> I imagine this thing out there and yes, dreams are important. They are absolutely important, but like, that's, it's, it's not a real thing until I can touch it, you know? And just having that hard talk with myself, like that wasn't yours. That for whatever reason, like, I don't know what problem I'm going to solve there. Like, <laughs> yeah, I think it was absolutely necessary in order to move forward. Before, uh, before Jeff died, do you think that you were a personality that tended to look in the future or tended to live in the past? Could you say that about yourself? Definitely, because I've given a lot of thought to this. And, and when I say this, it doesn't come from a place of regret or criticism of my past. It was just, that was a different lifetime. <laughs> I was a different person then too. And, and everything was different. So um, I think that we were always looking ahead. And as much, as many adventures and as much fun as Jeff and I had, like I really wonder how much I was really aware of the truly present moment. Like in that very guttural, like feel it through your whole body kind of sensation. And I don't think I was. And and I'm grateful that, I mean, I did want to throat punch my therapist when she used this phrase when I first started seeing her, but she's like, I know it's hard to believe right now, but there will be gifts that come from grief if you open your eyes and let yourself experience them and recognize them. And I definitely think that living in the present is the biggest gift that I've gained. And I'm grateful for it. This episode of Creative Rising is brought to you by Think Tank. Think Tank is who we use for all of our camera bags. And we've used Think Tank camera bags for the last 10 years. And the reason we've used them for so long is because their bags are so well-made and so durable that they just last forever and we never have to replace them. 
Yeah, I think it was 2008 that we bought our first think tank rolling bag, and we just replaced it. It's 2019, so it lasted over 10 years, and we didn't even replace it because it broke. We replaced it because we just wanted the new features of the new bag. <laughs> that rolling bag, the think tank airport security, has gone with us all around the world. Like, it's flown like 500,000 miles with us to countries like Italy and Bolivia and France and Peru. I'm pretty sure that bag went with us to Machu Picchu. Yeah. And it hasn't shown any wear and tear over the, those years. And we are hard on our rolling bags. Yeah, like when I, Aaron always makes fun of me because whenever we're like going down sets of stairs, I literally just like drag the bag down. And I'm like, it's fine. Yeah, it's like, good thunk, good thunk, good thunk, like down these steps. And I'm like, can you pick it up? He's like, no, it's great. And it really is. Like all the lenses inside, we've never had any damage or anything to any of our lenses. They are so protected inside this bag. And like I said, it's been all over the world. We're on beaches or meadows or mountains, trains, planes, automobiles, <laughs> you name it, that bag has gone through it. Yeah, and we use that for our rolling bag. And then we have a retrospective 30 for my shoulder bag and then a retrospective 10 for your shoulder bag and they're just perfect for us. They hold our lenses really well and let us have really easy access to them on wedding days and they still look just like super professional. They look so nice and classy for the really, you know, nice high-end weddings that we're shooting and they travel really well and so we love our retrospective shoulder bags. Yeah, and so we have those and then we have um, the Think Tank like tripod bag for all of our tripod and lighting gear and even our card wallets are Think Tank. We're like big Think Tank fans. And they literally just started sponsoring the podcast. So maybe we should have done this before. <laughs> we totally should have. <laughs> to get your hands on the Think Tank Airport Security Rolling Bag or one of their retrospective shoulder bags, go to creativerising.com forward slash Think Tank. And when you follow that link, then Think Tank will give you a free Think Tank accessory with any purchase. That's at creativerising.com forward slash Think Tank. I don't know, probably a couple of years ago, I just came to this realization of like the coolest people I ever meet and like the kindest and the most empathetic are the ones who've had hard stuff in their story. And it's like going through that rounds off these hard edges. It makes you kinder. It makes you gentler. It makes you like when you bump into people, you cut them less. Whereas when you kind of talk to somebody who's just sort of like, I grew up easy, then I went to college and it was easy. Then I had a business and it was easy. What, what, like what? It's hard. Elwood style. Um, they are just these people where it's just really hard. You know, it's like hard to go much deeper than that. Like what? It's what? It's easy. And they do tend to be people who, because it hasn't been, there hasn't been something that rubbed up against them to kind of carve off those hard edges. They do tend to be those people who bump into others and just cause injury um, unintentionally. And so I have really, really made peace with being a person with a hard story and a long, the long game story instead of just like this happens overnight kind of story, because in every way, it's making me a better person. It's making me softer and kinder and hopefully more interesting to talk to you than just like, oh, you just did it and it was easy. What? Like, it's hard. Um, and I think like, you know, kind of in writing this book, talking to publishers, I was like, you know, I, for a long time. I've been, I've had an awareness that God has done something with me in the form of a gift with words, but it wasn't until recently that I realized he also gave me a gift in this very hard story because otherwise you can have all the words in the world, but what are you going to write about?
I totally agree with Mary, which is one reason why I was so drawn to doing this episode and to telling Betsy's story. And there's more of Betsy's story to come in this episode, how she came home, found her creative self, and is building a new business from scratch right now. But I also want to talk about Mary's story because it's a different kind of starting over, a different kind of moving on and moving forward. And I want to say here that it is easy to look at these two stories and to compare them, to say one is harder than the other. But what I want to say is that I wanted to include Mary's story because there's so much to learn from it too. Because if you haven't gone through a loss or experienced a grief, then her story may feel a lot more relatable to you. Each story is different. Each story is valid. And I love that. Long story short, I have felt like I wanted to write a book since I was five years old. That is not, you know, an exaggeration or hyperbole, like legitimately five years old. What happened was there's an author who was born in West Virginia named Pearl S. Buck. She's a Nobel Prize winner. She's a Pulitzer winner. She wrote The Good Earth. And we would drive past her birthplace all the time. There's a little plaque outside that says birthplace of Pearl S. Buck. And I just had this feeling Honestly, I, like not to go too deep, but I felt like God spoke to me at a very young age and said, this story that you're living right now, this single wide trailer, this, you know, things are are not especially easy all the time. Like, like this story has a purpose and, and we're going to do more with this story one day. And I'm specifically telling you that it will be in book form. And I'm giving you an example of somebody who came from where you came from and who brought honor to West Virginia. And we're going to do that someday. And I need you to just hold on and be patient because it's not going to be probably when you think it's going to be, but it is going to happen. Mary grew up in West Virginia, and her story isn't one of grief or loss necessarily, but it's one of wrestling with a difficult place that she grew up in, one that she didn't get to choose. Yeah, so I, you know, I, I was born and raised in West Virginia. I grew up in on the top of a mountain called Fenwick Mountain. Um, that kind of fed into the town, which was called Richwood. And when all of the mountains were kind of drawn together, we had about 130 kids um, in my graduating class. And we had like one stoplight and a Mountaineer Mart and a grocery store and a Dollar General. And um, the house that I grew up in was actually a single wide trailer that had kind of like one of the things to do um, in the area that I grew up is when you have a single wide trailer, you sort of build on an additional room, like a bonus room. That's kind of just like a little lean-to um, piece of construction on the side that's, you know, made of whatever wood you have available. And so that's what we had. At some point, we looked at putting a roof over it, but we ran out of money halfway through. So it's a, like a half roof that runs half the length of the trailer. And because these trailers are sort of not really meant to be permanent housing, I don't, I don't think, at some point the roof started leaking and the the room that was built on was not built very well. So it was leaking in the seam where it connected to the trailer and in, in the roof and where the stove, the old wood stove was in this bonus room was not connected at the ceiling. So flames would shoot out and streak overhead and you would have in the, in the spring, it would rain just as hard inside as it would out to the point that the roof and the ceiling would fill with water. And I, I said this recently, like my people are the people who know what a ceiling looks like just before it caves in when it's leaking. Like, you know what that like drywall or whatever it's called, that's not the right word, plaster or whatever. You know what that material looks like in a ceiling right before it crumbles under the weight of that water. 
the insulation hangs down and the you throw a log on the fire and the flames singe the pink panther in, insulation. The water pours through the floor and makes it start to cave in and crumble and the brown carpeting, you're not sure which part is still carpet and which part is just crumbling into the ground beneath it. And so it was, you know, a very humble place to grow up, I suppose. It was when you have water pouring through a house like that, you get mildew, which clings to your clothes. It clings to your dignity. We had mushrooms growing out of the carpet at one point. We always had stray animals that, you know, weren't really picked up after so that, you know, that was in the carpet. So it was, it was, it was so strange to have this dichotomy of this really rough kind of a home in, you know, what it was and cleanliness and things like that, but also a home where I was very, I was very loved. You know, my parents loved me. My parents worked, they did not ultimately stay together, but they both agreed like whatever it took, their daughter was going to be the one who got out. And so it was, it was just this, like, I don't know, like I spent my whole life saying, I'm going to get away from that trailer. But even as it was happening, I sort of knew that the the person that I was because I grew up there, that that trailer would always go with me. And Mary was the one that got out of that small town. She went to college and then went to law school at Yale, which is when she met her husband, Justin, who had gone to school for photography and he was starting a photography business. And Mary at that time was getting all kinds of amazing offers at law firms in New York and London. And we had to kind of decide if we were going to take those offers and move into a city where I would probably be working at the firm a hundred hours a week, you know, brand new junior associates basically take pride in sleeping under their desks. Or if we were going to build this business together kind of from the ground up, we always say without a penny to our name or a clue what we're doing, but get to build something where we actually got to spend time together, where we were building it you know, shoulder to shoulder and where we kind of got to bear witness to each other's lives that we weren't spending all this time apart. And so we decided that we would rather be together. We would rather build it together. And so we kind of took that leap, believing the net would appear. And that was in the fall of 2006. And so this month actually makes 13 years ago since we um, started that business. And for 13 years, we ran a husband and wife photography business. We traveled all over. We were in, you know, Italy and France and London and all over the place, teaching workshops and shooting weddings. And it was a thriving, successful business. It was everything that we ever dreamed and more that it could be when we set out to build it because we had really high hopes for this business. If I was going to leave those law firm offers, if Justin was going to do weddings instead of advertising photography, which is what he went to school for, then it really, we felt like it really needed to be something special. And we watched every one of those goals come true. And it was like kind of at the height of this business that we were now sort of feeling like maybe now it's the best time to kind of go after something totally different. So when you're describing this journey, you've had this author inside of you ever since you were a little girl, basically. Is that how you would describe it? Like it's just, it's been there and has it been this journey of discovering it and now you get to nurture it and now you get to give it a voice? Oh, I know. I would say like it was discovered. Like it was like I was literally that weird kid who would walk through my yard speaking in narrative, like thinking in narrative. She walked through the yard and picked up a toy and I would read like John Grisham books when I was like eight and nine years old. And like I knew I was going to be an author. I was reading these like legal <laughs> 
fiction books, which made me think like, maybe I'll go to law school and someday I'll write books like John Grisham, except I never actually write fiction. And that never made sense to me of like, why was that such a strong influence? But like it all kind of everything makes sense. The plan and the purpose makes sense in hindsight that like I did end up in law school. And then the book that I'm writing is memoir, which is the only, well, I don't know if it's the only, but it's one of the main nonfiction books that you actually write kind of like it's fiction. And so like all of these worlds are kind of colliding with the book that we are actually writing, the growing up where I did and bringing honor to West Virginia. There's a little bit of like, you know, just that law school part being a big part of the story. We're going to talk about that in the book. And then we're actually writing something that is in that fiction kind of feel, even though it is my story that we're putting out there. Like the character arcs and the character development are like me and like my parents, my family. So that's interesting. But I wouldn't say I had to like figure it out or like give voice to it. I think it was that I had to get the courage up to finally go do something about it. Because at a certain point, I think our business being so successful was a really good excuse not to go do something about it. Hmm. Was it a place to hide for you? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I think that's a really interesting question and a really cool way to word it because I do think sometimes there are places that we hide that are actually behind successes. Like where we get really comfortable in putting our identity in these like boxes we can check or these like achievements we can, shiny trophies we can put on the wall or, you know, the the Instagram highlight reel, whatever the case may be. And there's, you know, what started off as such an uncomfortable, like take your breath away, leap and the net will appear at some point did become a pretty sure thing. Like, you know, we had no problems booking weddings. We had no problems um, selling out workshops or, you know, opening up courses or whatever. And so I do think that there is a certain element of hiding because to start something new is to be new at something. It's to be uncertain. It's to not know the answers. It's to end up asking a lot of questions that like everybody else in the room already knows. And so I think you can get into a place where you hide behind successes because you've done that leap once and you're trying to like work up that courage of like, whoo, falling in love with that feeling of free falling again. There was a version of you that did love that, but that version of you maybe didn't have a mortgage, you know, and all these like other bills and, and grown up things to worry about. And so one of my favorite quotes I ever heard a speaker say was, you leaped the first time the ledge came around, but will you leap again the next time it appears? And for a long time, I was like, not looking for the ledge because it's actually really nice up here <laughs> where we, on you know, this thing that we've climbed to the top of. So I do think, I think there's a certain element of hiding behind success for sure. Now that you guys are older, you have a mortgage. There's, does it feel like there's more at stake with this one this time around instead of leaving law school to go to wedding photography? There definitely is more at stake. Um, when we were going into the book pitching process, so to just kind of give a little bit of perspective to that, I got my agent two years ago. His daughter-in-law actually heard me on a podcast and kind of put you know, me on his radar. And we, I sent some writing samples over and we did some back and forth and I signed with him two years ago. And for about a year, uh, a year and a half, something like that, I just really felt very stuck in actually doing something about putting a proposal together. I was going through the motions, but like really just dragging my feet with it because once you get the chance to do the thing you've wanted to do your whole life, suddenly you have to do something about it and it's scary. But we finally got around to getting motivated in January because I was nearing the end of a two-year contract with him. And I was like, 
even though he wasn't saying anything like this, I was like, gosh, what if he just doesn't renew if I let it expire? So let's, let's not give him that option. Let's get moving. And so in January, we really just got busy about putting together the promo video we had filmed uh, the previous October when we were in West Virginia, finishing up the proposal, doing all the meetings. And so I finished, I got final approval on the proposal the end of February. We sent it out to publishers in the end of March after typesetting and editing. We did calls in April and I um, signed in May with my publisher. And so when we were going into that process, I do think there was an element of it feels uncertain. It feels like, gosh, you know, we we are going to be giving up this thing that's working and there are mortgages and there are bills to pay. To be fair, we are keeping our education business for the photography side. So it's not completely turning off that revenue. So there is, you know, we did work very hard to build up streams of income that continue. But I still think that like, yes, exactly. Like we're grownups. We have grown up responsibilities. We don't, we're much more conservative in our finances now. We're much more about making smart leaps. So we definitely spent a lot of time thinking about how to do that well. Talk to me a little bit about that period where you really like, it sounds like you were dragging your feet on getting the proposal finished during that, you know, was it two years? One year, two years? Two years. Like, two-year well, process? A year and a half, yeah. <laughs> year and a half. And um, what do you think it was when you get down to it? Like when you get inside your head and you're you're in that conversation that you were having with yourself during that period when you're saying, I need to write this proposal. I need to get it done. What was What was that conversation that was going on? And what was it that you think now looking back on it that was holding you back? Well, I think the thing that got me going and actually like, oh, gosh, we better get this done was the fear of losing it became bigger than the fear of it not being good enough. And so that kind of answers the second question, which is like, what was keeping me stuck? And it was all of these feelings of perfectionism and perfectionism is the most advanced form of procrastination. And this, you've been given your chance, you know, you've thought about this for your entire life. And now someone said, great, here's your shot. Um, and it's kind of that feeling of like, what if I'm that person who goes to the American Idol <laughs> tryouts and I actually can't sing, you know, after talking about it my whole life. And so I think there is this fear of what if I put the proposal together? What if I put my writing samples in front of these seasoned publishers who know exactly what they're talking about or have seen everything at this point? And everybody who's ever said, oh, gosh, you have a you know, a gift for writing was just the same people who tell the American Idol, you know, blooper people that they have a gift for singing and then they get up there and it's, it's not good enough. What if it's not, what if it's not good enough? What if I'm not good enough? The fear of losing the dream was bigger than it not being good enough. Can you relate to that? Because I know I can. That sums up the story of this podcast right here. It took me two and a half years to get this podcast off the ground, and it's a podcast. But there comes a time when we have to decide which one is bigger, our dream or our fears, our future or our grief, our present or our anger. Which one are we going to allow to write our story? Are we going to write our story or are we going to let our fears, let our grief, let our anger write our future for us? And that's why I love these two friends of mine and why I wanted to share their stories here together because they are two very different examples of the very same thing. Two people choosing their future over what happened to them in the past. 
But then when you do decide to step into that future, when you do decide to do the thing, big or small, that you've always dreamed of doing, or you decide to move past the grief and create a life for yourself, when you decide to do that, the thing is that it doesn't really always go the way you plan for it to go, right? It can get really, really hard. How do you move through all of that when it gets really hard? Do you question it? Do you question like, should I really be doing this? Is this the right thing for me? Oh, great question. I, of course I question it. Of course, I mean, I'm human and I think we all, being humans, we, when we feel like, you know, whether that's, whether you're coming at this from like a faith perspective or not, when we feel like we're supposed to do something and we get this like overwhelming feeling of like, yes, I know what I'm supposed to do. We expect that thing to then happen immediately because the feeling was so clear. And so I think something I've had to learn through all of this is that just because God says something is supposed to happen or we're in our calling or we're 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 in what he has for us next it ne- he also never said it's going to be easy it's going to be fast it's going to be without pressure or its own pain points that it's not going to feel messy and like really really hard at times and so in those moments when it's like god i don't understand you told me to go do this thing or you told me to like you know like that now was the time for that thing and now it's really you know, we worked so hard and somebody else who didn't just blew right past us or we worked so hard and we didn't get the result that we wanted or we, you know, had our hearts changed on this thing and we're so ready now and then you're taking your time and like fulfilling that promise. So I think for me, it's that tension of like, first of all, I go back to the promise. I go back to that moment of like when it became, when it felt so clear and and the more that you do this, the more that you've had those times where it's like, I can remember having that peace and that gut, what, I'm, what I've been calling a gut feeling and see that that was really God all along and then see how it turned out. One of my favorite quotes I've heard, Audrey Roloff actually shared this. She said, God's past faithfulness demands our present trust. And so in those moments when it just feels like, where'd you go? You asked me, I felt like we were so clear. We were on the same page. We were rocking and rolling with this. What happened? I just remember that a, a promise to go do this thing or or being asked to step out and do this thing does not mean that the end result is going to be immediate. And so all of those times when I've had a gut feeling and I can see how beautifully it turned out, remind me to be faithful in the present and to trust in the present. So like our house is a perfect example of that. We were, you know, looking for houses, looking for houses. It was like a nine month process. And the house that we're in is actually the fifth and sixth house we put offers in on. The sixth one finally took nine months into looking for a house. We thought we were going to get one in January. September, we finally closed. And then 10 more years of renovating and restoring this house. But I just kept going back to this promise from the second we walked into a house that I never wanted to look at. Justin was the one like, let's go look at it. Let's go look at it. And I was like, nope, that's not our house. That's not our house. And then the second I walked in and I stood on the second floor and I looked out the window, we faced the sound. And that could be, you could argue, well, you're you're facing the water. That was probably the, the inspiration. But I just felt that same gut feeling, that still small voice that said, this is our house. 
Did I know at the time it was going to be a decade-long journey to actually get it to a point of being pretty finished? No, and I'm kind of glad I didn't. But what I knew is that there was a promise and that however long it took, the end was going to be beautiful. Where do you feel like you're currently at on your journey of starting over? Well, I just went to, I know it's the weirdest, it, I'm always like, it sounds like the worst summer camp ever, but Camp Widow <laughs> um, is put on by an organization called Soaring Spirits, and it's been an incredible resource for me, but I just went to that again this year, and I'm going into my fourth year of widowhood, which is still such a weird word to hear, <laughs> um, but I think really at this point, I'm learning to... I have to I have to watch what I say around the norms as I that's, that's what sorry that's what we call y'all outside the widow community. <laughs> <laughs> We're called the norms. The norms. <laughs> <laughs> Just let you behind the curtain there. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but um you know at a certain point my grieving process had to become more about me than it was about Jeff which is, it's kind of hard to say that out loud. <laughs> um, but I, it makes complete sense to me, by the way, when you say that. So I don't hear that and think you're crazy. I'm like, well, of course it's more about you. It's, you got some healing to do. Is that, am I on the right track yeah. with that? And it's like, and I'm, I'm the one who's alive. What are you going to do with that, you know? Um, it's just, it's like, it's always hard to kind of hear those words come out of my mouth, though, because it's like, it just sounds like I'm, like disregarding him and it's not that at all. It's just like it's what it's what you need to move forward, you know? And I decided to not give up. So that's what I'm uh, I'm doing it, you know? Um and so right now it's really it was it was affirming, reaffirming to go to Camp Widow and hear like I'm where I need to be right now, you know? Like when they're talking about like people who are in the three to five year range and they're just saying like this is the rebuilding period. This is where you start to re-enter society. And I'm going, okay, so I felt like I was behind things or, you know, like these things that run through your head because all of us have this idea of what kind of timeline this is supposed to run on until you actually go through it and then you just feel like everything that you're doing is probably wrong. And, and so um, just recognizing that and being like, right, that's what I'm doing right now. I'm rebuilding. After her experience in London, Betsy came home to San Diego and she sold the house here that she had shared with Jeff for many years of their marriage. She traveled some more and then she actually met the guy who she's dating right now and she has fallen madly in love with him. And two and a half years after Jeff passed away, she felt like it was time to start the process of going back to work which meant that she had to figure out what her new business was going to look like, who she was as an artist, and what she offered as value to her clients. Getting a desk job or a corporate job for her was just not an option, okay? She had been through too much to give up on her artist life. So she found some really amazing resources to help her along her creative journey. One, she went through the artist way, which... 
I've known about for years, but I've never done. But I actually finally started doing it after this interview with Betsy because it was so powerful for her in helping her unblock her creativity. If you're not familiar with The Artist's Way, then it's a book that takes you through a 12-week program of exercises, and it helps you unblock your creativity. And it's really amazing. I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes for you because it's such a great resource. But that's just one of the resources that Betsy leaned into. And then I was working with a mindset coach at that time too. And I mean, I'm doing tapping therapy and I'm doing daily affirmations, like all of this stuff and working with my therapist. I was going to therapy once a week during this process too, because it just, I had to unpack a lot of stuff. (laughs) And the process that I went through with this, which I really appreciated a couple of components, I think involving a mindset coach was a really helpful part of this because it's not something I would have thought of. And it was just, and I think I really had a lot of mental hangups. I had shame about not talking with my clients for two and a half years. Like, I don't know what I would have said to them during that time, but like, I just, I, I was carrying a lot of guilt and shame and, and it was really hard for me to move forward because I was buried in that. And so I had to do some digging and like, we really kind of went deep into, and this is part of the work I did with my therapist as far as like talking about what is it that I've learned during this process of the past couple of years? What has life taught me? What is, is that something that I can bring into my business? Because my business is a part of me. And so it really came back down to that learning to live in the present. And I crafted this idea of the life documentary sessions in a really deep pre-shoot process where we're taking the ordinary and making it extraordinary. It's like, this is your everyday life. And these little moments that you don't think anything about are precious. And and to try to manage to do that in not a dark way, (laughs) you know, Um, because a lot of it is based in my experience. It's like, you just don't know when things could change. And wouldn't it be like incredible to have these, these moments just frozen in time? So that became kind of the And so I came up with this. It's basically a time capsule. That's what I'm calling this program. And I'm really thankful. Like my client, like the people who get it, get it. In your the documentary portraits that you're doing, as a part of that, have you chosen to tell your story as a part of that brand? Or does that make your new business all about the old business? Good question. (laughs) Um. I did go through a process of trying to figure out like I need to I need to share part of my story because it's the why behind why I'm doing that. It really gives it the bigger meaning and not in the interest of exploiting that or profiting from that or anything like that. I'm just going to get that out of the way right now. <laughs> but it, I I can't be authentic with my clients if they don't know what I'm about. And I have to be transparent. That's just the kind of person I am, especially now. (laughs) And I just, I feel like that's only fair. If they're going to be, if they're going to give me so much, I have to give to them too. Mm -hmm. So. So is it less that you're talking about the past and more about you are talking about your present self and how that is integrated into the present self that you are now? Yeah, I mention on my about page, I 
actually don't even mention Jeff by name because I also don't want people like, because we're curious creatures, right? <laughs> oh, let's Google Jeff McHugh and then you go down that rabbit hole, right? I mean, if they know it, good on you. Drive yourself, like, drive yourself down that road. But <laughs> I mentioned all the components about like, you know, when I, when I lost my best friend, my life partner, and my business partner, I went on this journey, and one of the gifts that it came from this whole process was learning to live in the present, and I really want to bring that to my clients. And it's something that I feel the need, I feel compelled to share. And that's not me. If you, that is also something that comes out of drinking the Kool-Aid of the artist way. <laughs> it's like, that's the, I can't have an ego about that because that's been given to me, and it's my job to share it. And it's something that I can help other people experience. And if if what I do for a living and my art can give to people in that way, like how selfish would I be to not share that? Mm-hmm. So I think it's really, it's taken a lot of the ego of being an artist out of the equation for me. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like more of a, I feel compelled to share, like, because I have to. Like, this is something that's coming from the universe and it's pulling it out of me. Like, I'm just the vehicle for delivering it, you know? And so I think that's kind of what's come from that. Yeah, I would think, I think the biggest thing that I've learned through this thus far is to be okay with things happening later in life than you would think or, or taking longer than you would think. Because one of the one of the biggest things I've realized is that the book that I am writing now at 39 is vastly different than the book I would have written right out of law school at 27 because I've had time for forgiveness to take root. I've had time for wisdom to take root. I've had time, you know, just to kind of work through a lot of things and and to for empathy, not just for myself as, a, you know, a little kid, but also my parents and the fact that they were once little kids and just this idea that, you know, when things get broken, it didn't happen overnight and that they have a story as well. And And when you start to kind of like be more of that in that grown up place. I think it's a lot easier to know what your parents were going through and where they were coming from, just trying to hold a family together. So a lot of times I could say, man, it took me too long, man, I should have gotten moving on the book sooner, man, why did it take me all of this time to get here? But one of the easiest answers is because I'm writing an entirely different book than I would have, if I had written me personally, if I had written the book right out of law school at that age. It would have been an angry book. It would have been a bitter book. It would have been like a look what I did despite it all book. But because of that grace of God saying, we're going to do this thing, but it's not going to be when you think it is. Just because I say we're going to do it, it doesn't mean it's going to be fast. Is that the gift that came out of all of that is that this is going to be a book that's this story of redemption and it has victory in it. And it's just going to be kind of this salve to wounds that other people might have instead of just like more anger, more bitter, more, you know, let's talk about how hard this was. Now there's kind of like this piece at the end of the story and that piece came with time. So I would just say, if it's taking longer, if it's harder, if you're, you were told to move, but now all of a sudden it's like, hurry up and wait, just know that in that time, it's because a better story is being written And that like, you know, we always kind of talk about on our show that this idea of like slow growth equals strong roots. And so I always joke like, dang it, why did God have to give us like 
that is like a recurring tagline in our lives. That comes from Justin saying that to me about 13 years ago. And I was like, why is our business not taking off already? Um, And so in everything that we've done, it's the slow growth equals strong roots when we want it to happen really fast. But doing it as long as we, you know, being in business as long as we have, We've also gotten to see the flip side of that, which is like fast growth means you get knocked over with every storm. And we've been doing this long enough to see that happen. People kind of like that flash in a pan pop up overnight and just as quickly they're gone. So if it's taking longer, if it feels harder, just keep believing that a better story is being written and slow growth equals strong rates. Do you feel like you are prepared for the possibility of, you know, quote, failure with the book, whatever that looks like, but the possibility that... It, it won't go the way that you plan, that it won't, you know, be successful. Do you feel like you guys have thought through that and prepared for that? In As in everything I've done in my life, one of the things I always do is scan the landscape and go, hey, what does success look like? Checkbox, check, 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 check. Let's go mark them off one by one. So I've, of course, done that in book world. I mean, I just, that's a part of my brain that it's, I think it's impossible to turn off. But what's different this time around from having that foundation is there's also like, I was telling the publisher, there's two parts of my brain. It's like, there's two like levels of my brain that are kind of squaring off. There's like that more surface area. That's like these shiny boxes that we can check, but the more, and through doing this work with my coach, the more important success to me is, is this the book that I'm going to write? Is it the book that the little me would have wanted to read when I was still in that trailer? And the, to all the little girls who are out there in the trailers right now, or whatever their version of the trailer looks like, who are feeling like their story doesn't matter because of where it began and that they are going to stay in that place. What book can I write that's not the thing that I want to tell, but it's the story that they need to hear? And if I can do that, if I can write the book that like little me would be proud of and like would have needed as like a handbook for like survival of like, here's how we know this story is going to matter then I think that's, that success is, that happens with the work that I do in my heart with like asking God as an audience of one, what do you want me to say? And how do I write this story that they need to hear, not what I need to tell? If we can do that, then the other stuff, while still something I want to go after, like that's not dependent on the what the world says matters. So we can do that first part, that deeper part of my brain, then I feel okay with it because ultimately that's the real work of this book. So now writing the book, do you find it difficult to write about those memories or have you come to a sense of peace with those memories or has the writing of all of this stuff been cathartic for you or healing for you in the process? The writing has definitely been cathartic. Um, I'm reading a really great book called The Art of Memoir alongside writing it. And she kind of walks you through some exercises. One of them is like early on in the book, she's like, there's this one scene in your mind that you're putting off writing. You think you're going to put it off till the very end, but you're not. You're going to write about it right now. And she walks you through an exercise that's like this very sensory exercise where you're picturing the sights that you would see and the smells and the textures to really immerse yourself in that scene. And she keeps going deeper until you can, this is so powerful, until you can look down and see your own younger hands. So you're like the little kid version of your hands or whatever the case is. And, you know, you kind of keep going, keep going, putting yourself, putting yourself in the scene until you can literally like, it's like you're back in that little kid body and you're like reliving it all over again. And then she has you write the scene. And at the end of it, she says, here's how you know if you're ready to write memoir. If you wrote that and you are now in the fetal position in the corner, (laughs) you know, completely 
unconsolable or inconsolable, like you're probably not ready to write this story. But on the other hand, if you wrote that and you like didn't even like shed a single tear or like show any emotion at all, you might not be in a place of like empathy or acceptance of your story. Like you might, like your heart might be on lockdown right now. Um, only if you're kind of in the middle where like you felt emotion, maybe even teared up, maybe even cried a little, but like you're okay. Like you could handle it. Then you're ready to move forward with writing this story. And so that's really kind of what my experience has been is like, we're going back to places deeply immersive, put myself right back in the same places and we're writing through them. I don't know why I keep saying we're, it's just me. Um, I'm writing through them and it's like looking under the bed and, and the monster's not that scary. You know, it's like, it was hard and it was really, really brutal or, you know, whatever you want to call it. It was just really hard to be in it in the first go round. But like, there's this sense of like, you're safe now, you're safe now, you know, and you're, it, you know how it turns out and it's okay. And, um, I've been getting this like repeating message of seeing it in a few different places. Um, we actually just watched rocket man last night, which is the most recent place we've seen it. Um, where, uh, hopefully this isn't like a spoiler alert for the movie. I don't think it is, but at the end you see like grown up Elton John talking to like young Reggie Dwight or whatever his name was. Um, and it references something earlier in the in the movie, but he the little boy version of him essentially says like, "Are you ever gonna hug me?" And like he like he's like hugging this little boy version of himself, and it's kind of like getting to this place of like, sometimes when you have a messy story, you spend so much of your life escaping that or self-preserving or like running away from it that you forget to have empathy for the younger or little you that lived it. And so kind of getting to that place in your grown-up life where you feel safe enough to go back to that little kid version of you and go, I'm sorry that happened to you. That wasn't okay. And like, now we don't have to survive anymore. We don't have to run anymore. We can just say, you know, I feel empathy for you. Coming to acceptance for our stories, whether they've been hard, difficult, or devastating, or whether they've been wonderful, whether they've been amazing stories of love and legacy, we all have our own story that we can either reject or accept because it's the story that we have. We can't go back in time and we can't change it. It is ours. But no matter what, on that path to acceptance, there will be tension and there will be difficulty. But the beauty of wrestling with our stories, of starting over, of starting something new, is that it requires a sort of ripping down of the walls that we've built, and it requires us to get down to our own foundations, and we get to see what we're truly made of. The house that we, were, that we live in that I was talking about earlier, um, the reason we were able to get it is because there was, it was in foreclosure, there was a flood from a third floor pipe, tons of flooding. The neighbor next door found water pouring out of the second floor window, if that gives you an idea. Then they drained it, let it set for all summer, so it got mold. So it was in really great shape when I walked in and I felt like that still small voice said, 
this is your house. So that's what I mean. Like you really got to be like in a faith or trust place with that voice based on past faithfulness uh, to be in your present trust. But one of the things when they came to work on the house that they said was, if this house had been built in modern times using modern building materials, it would have been a, uh, a loss. They would have had to level it because modern building materials tend to be a lot more porous. But because this was built in the 1880s with the construction they had where it was like these 12 by 12 solid beams, solid wood beams, the mold didn't get into the, the core of the house. And so because it had been built well from the beginning, these storms that come later on didn't affect the foundation. I think the biggest components right now is just being in that space where I, I've been able to dream and start building new dreams. And, and, and trusting the universe again. And like being able to fall in love again. And like being able to fall in love with my work again. And, um, and just being in that space of having gratitude for not what's happened, but what I've been through and where it's brought me. Gut reaction. If the old you could see the new you, what do you think the old you would say? <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, who's that girl? <laughs> She's got a mouth on her. <laughs> I also think like old Betsy would be pretty proud of new Betsy. <laughs> I love that. What do you think she would be most proud of? Um, I think going for it. And I say that, I mean that in all the different ways. Like, and just owning it. And being okay with that. <laughs> and knowing that I don't have to be everything. But owning what I am. And taking care of myself, too. Instead of being so concerned about taking care of everybody else. When Betsy first started traveling and taking those first images in Europe that were her, that new step into her new creative self, something interesting started happening. Friends from back home were telling Betsy that it was so fascinating to watch her photos because they were such a reflection of where she was at. Not physically, of course. Yeah, she was in these beautiful European cities and she was taking gorgeous photos of the scenery, but they were a reflection of where she was at emotionally. It's the darkness and the light that they were seeing in my photography and how that had now become part of my work. And and it actually gives me goosebumps to like think about that because it was like, it's, it, and somebody had said, I mean, people have said a variety of different things related to that, but they're like, there's like this underlying sadness that's kind of there, but there's, but it's where the light comes into it. And I thought that that was really, really interesting. And I think that that's, I think that's reflected in the work that I do for my clients now too, is just that there's the lightness and the darkness and that has a certain beauty to me and a certain appreciation um, because of what I've been through. And it's like kind of my mark on it now. And I didn't even know it was there. It took, <laughs> took several other people pointing it out. <laughs> I think of the phrase you mentioned earlier, that it's one of the gifts of grief, that the 
darkness, do you think you see the darkness now as a gift? And maybe that's why, and you see it as like a gift in the full picture of life and that it's just as valuable as the light. Do you think that that has something to do with it and why it's incorporated into your photography now after this experience? Definitely, definitely. And I think, um, I think because I've been able to recognize that there's, you know, even my darkest times, I was surrounded by so much light and love by other people. And the fact that I could still find hope, even when it seemed like things were hopeless. I, I, I think it's that, it's that yin and the yang and the la vida bella, like life is beautiful, but that, that notion is, includes the dark stuff too. So I think it's just so fascinating that I grew up in a trailer with it would rain just as hard inside as out. And then we bought a house where, you know, <laughs> the water's coming out of the second floor window. But I can tell you, I cannot tell you like the sense of accomplishment I felt when we were buying this house and restoring it. And we actually, we had the roof redone and the roof was completed. Like I lived, I owned a home, you know, with a roof. That was a huge a huge, it felt like a big break in our family tree or the kind of like generational chains in our, in our family. So it's really interesting to both, you know, hate this trailer when you're in it and then reach this place where you love this trailer for who it made you. Light and dark. Hate the trailer and love the trailer. Hate your story and love your story. That's the thing about hard stories about starting over, about doing something new that you've never done before, whether you choose that new path or life chooses it for you. It means that you have to take these two separate things, these very different experiences of your life, and you need to choose to either keep them separated and hold them apart. And I picture this as if I'm standing and holding up two separate heavy walls in between my arms and they're outstretched and in, and I have to bear the weight and the tension and I have to be the thing that constantly holds them up. Or you can stop bearing that weight and you can choose to let go of those two walls and you can choose to integrate them. And the people who choose to integrate, who choose gratitude over anger, acceptance over bitterness, humility over pride, they are the ones that truly move forward and truly start over. What's interesting to me about these two wonderful women and the lives that they've lived is that they have chosen to let the light and the dark live together. And not only live together, but they have chosen to allow one to make the other more beautiful. And it wasn't always that way for them, right? It took time and it was a long, hard, difficult process. Hard stories are still hard. Starting over is still about leaving something behind. There is grief, there is pain, and there is tension. But it's like how you appreciate the sunshine so much more after a long rain. The world seems brighter, it seems richer, it seems more colorful after it's been in the darkness for a while. And these are two extremely strong women that have chosen to let the darkness make their own light even brighter. Thank you.
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining me here today for this episode of Creative Rising. This was a very, very special one for me because it tells the story of one of my good friends and the tragedy that she went through. But it also tells the story of my other really good friend and the amazing things that she's doing. And so I so appreciate that you have given your time to these stories. And I appreciate that you are the kind of person that not only appreciates what we're doing here, but you're willing to share it with other people. So thank you to everyone who has shared these episodes with your friends, with your family, and with other creatives. If you want to see what Betsy is doing in her business, her business name is Betsy McHugh Pictures. I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes and on the episode page, creativerising.com forward slash 208. And there you're going to get to see what she is doing with her life documentary series. She's so talented. And I love how she has taken this value of living in the present and has created an entire business around it. Check it out, Betsy McHugh pictures. Also, Mary is coming out with her book in fall of 2020. That is a year from today at the time of this recording. And I am so excited about it. The book is called Dirt and it is her memoir about her story. So if you want to follow along on her journey, check out her own podcast. It's called The Mary Morant Show. And there is so much wisdom on that podcast. So if you love what we're doing here at Creative Rising, you are also going to love what Mary is doing over on her show, The Mary Morant Show. I'm going to put a link there on the episode page as well creativerising.com forward slash 208. If you loved this episode, then there's two things that I ask you to do. One is leave a review and tell me what you love about the show. That will help me understand how to create more content that you love even more. The second thing is share this with a friend. Okay, as a podcast junkie, I have found my most favorite podcast from recommendations from people that I know and love. So if you know someone that would totally vibe with what we're doing here at Creative Rising, share this show with them and I would be super grateful. All right. Thank you so much for being here today. I will see you next time on Creative Rising.